I'm Michael Downs, and I'm here to introduce, you know who I'm here to introduce. Recently, I read an Esquire magazine article about Hemingway, and it made me think of that fellow standing right there, Ron Tanner. Yeah, I mean, what inspired that notion? Here's the gist of what Esquire had to say, that Hemingway was a jerk, a, a bully, a misogynist, racist, hypocrite, bad husband, terrible father, he drank too much, he killed lots of animals without even needing to eat them, then stuck their heads on walls. And yet, said Esquire, compared to so many writers these days who are alive, who sit in Brooklyn cafes and eat sustainably sourced vegan foods and express sanctimonious outrage using hashtags on Twitter. At least Hemingway, Esquire said, frickin' did something. When you think novelist now, the article said, the first word that pops into your head is meek and the second is wounded. Say what you will about, Hesqu about Hemingway, Esquire went on, at least he believed a writer should live a life worth writing about. And I was reading this, and I was like, hey, hey, Esquire, you want a writer who's not meek or wounded? You want a writer whose life is big and bold and adventurous as his books? This guy, right here, this is the guy. And he's not even a jerk. In fact, he's one of the kindest, most generous people I know. If you know Ron Tanner, if you've read his books, you know I'm not exaggerating. Like Hemingway, he's a writer whose engine never stops. Thinking about what he accomplishes in a day exhausts me. At any given moment, he might be writing any of two or three books while teaching college students about commas, while playing drums for a jazz combo, while studying to become a certified house inspector, while building websites and retrofitting a Mercedes-Benz van for an umpteen-week book tour, after having returned from several long months in the Pacific Islands recording oral folk tales and histories. That's like a week. And I haven't even mentioned that most famous of Ron's adventures, the one chronicled in his memoir, From Animal House to Our House, how he and his lovely partner in love and life, Jill, decided one day to sink all their money into a disaster of a frat house and over the course of a decade return that home to its Victorian glory. And if you know Ron, you know the epilogue. That house is sold. The proceeds used to buy a farm that hasn't grown anything but weeds and mice since the Reagan administration. Do, do, do these people know how to live a life worth writing about? Which is why this new book, Missile Paradise, which I read in big, huge gulps, is so, so Ron Tanner. It's a novel about people who push themselves beyond their limits, who take adventures, who do things other people might say is crazy. Says the fiancé of one character just before he takes off on a solo sail across the Pacific Ocean to the Marshall Islands, you don't know your limits. 
No one in Missile Paradise knows her or his limits. Not Cooper the sailor, not Jeton the lovesick Marshallese teenager, not Allison the hard-drinking widowed school teacher. Nobody. Which is why this book becomes an old-fashioned adventure tale. It's like sailing with Ahab and Ishmael or getting lost with Robinson Crusoe. It's, and here I'm quoting Cooper, our sailor character who tries to explain his desire a particularly American desire, to set out for the farther shore. It's a celebration of a restless, reckless drive to live fully, to feel things a person can feel only when reckless. The characters in Missile Paradise know there's a price to pay for global adventures. This is the post-colonial 21st century, after all. And Cooper does pay a price. Jeton pays a price. Allison pays a price. The Marshall Islands pay a price. And in the end, even America pays too for taking off on such adventures. We go for the wrong reasons, one character tells another, and we do almost everything wrong. But it's better than not going or doing at all. A self-reflective, kinder Hemingway might have said the same thing. Ladies and gentlemen, Ron Tanner. Thank you, Michael. That was great. I love to hear people talk like that about me. Thank you all for coming. I know it's a lousy day to be outside. I know you wanted to stay inside and, I don't know, watch HGTV or something and maybe pop some corn and, you know, just, I know what that's like. I know. I I didn't even want to go out this morning. I said, oh, geez, forget it. But... I am so happy to be here. I really appreciate um, help from uh, Tracy Diamond, uh, Judy Cooper. Uh, the Enid Pratt is Baltimore's Pearl. This is a great library, wonderful place. Yes. <laughs> so let me just jump in here. Uh, I want to tell you something about the Marshall Islands, where this book takes place. I did live there uh, for a couple of years when I was a, a teenager. I went back in 93 to teach. Um, Americans, and then I went back in 2008, and here it is, uh, in in case you don't know, that's where we are, and it's uh, 4,500 miles from uh, California, so from here it's about uh, 7,500 miles. This is another picture you can see, there we are. Uh, We're closer on Kwajalein, in the Marshall Islands, we're closer to Japan than we are to the States. It's seven degrees north of the equator. And it is friggin' unbelievable. This is Kwajalein. This is uh, where I was living. This is uh, pretty much uh, property of the United States. We've leased it for 100 years, and we have a missile test site there. And that's what it looks like. It's three and a half miles long. It's a quarter mile wide. <clears throat> Interesting thing about this, <clears throat> this test site is that until 2000, it was top secret. Absolutely top secret. And everybody who worked there was uh, uh, contracted to keep the secret. But with the information revolution and the internet, they had to put up a website. So now you can go and you can, you can Google this. This is the Ronald Reagan Ballistic Missile Test Site. Uh, easy to find. And so they had to put forward all the information about the site in order to control the information. But 
Before that, it would have been inconceivable that anybody would have uttered anything about this island. My father, until he died, never told me what he did. He could never tell me what he did. He was actually, and I only found this after he died. I had to do the research. And he was actually a radar physicist. He worked for Bell Labs and Western Electric. Uh, high, high-end stuff. So the interesting thing about this missile test site, it's American. It's run by a handful of Army officers, but it's, it's peopled mostly by civilians. We're talking about contractors, programmers, physicists, scientists, all kinds of... And so in order to accommodate these people, and this is actual missile that um, <clears throat> took off from the end of the island. They no longer shoot missiles from Kwajalein. They actually have another island from which they shoot them. And in fact, uh, uh, the United States uh, has leased for 100 years uh, something like 20 islands out there. I'll get to the Marshall Islands in just a minute. They have plenty of islands to spare, by the way. Uh, this is uh, down by the airport. This is the, the tech side, and this is the residential side. All of this I lived, uh, I think, right about here. Um, <clears throat> and there are about approximately 3,000 people living there at the height of, uh, of, of the development, and now there's about 2,000. Again, Americans, but also an international crew. In order to accommodate these civilians, the Army had to, had to make this place livable insofar as... Um, amenities. So we have an outdoor theater, an indoor theater, first-run movies, free every night. Uh, all the food is subsidized. Groceries are about a third of the price of stateside. No cars. Everybody rides a bike. If you're an officer or you're somebody high up, you might get a government-issue uh, vehicle. Uh, two free pools, uh, uh, something like five playing fields, uh, nine-hole golf course. Um, you lived in, uh, this is a duplex, you live in these cinder block uh, duplex or triplexes, very tiny little things. These were built in the 1950s when uh, the Navy first got to the island after World War II and handed it over to the Army. And uh, again, uh, this is very modest. Uh, everything's air conditioned, of course. This is the most corrosive environment in the world. You can leave something out. Uh, our bikes, for instance, within six months, they're just roasted, roasted, roasted from, from uh, rust. And um, the point I'm getting at is um, these little window units, everybody and everything smells of mildew. Uh, you get used to it, but you walk into those houses when you first get there and you go, holy shit, what's going on here? And um, again, these look nice and cleaned up. Uh, they actually can get really seedy. Typical, every evening, gorgeous uh, Sunsets. So people are looking at the Marshall Islands, specifically Americans living on Kwajalein, this test site think is paradise, hence the title. And it's not, of course. We know we're grown-ups. We know how these things go. Um, you put anybody in close confines like this, your neighbors, you see them every day. There are no secrets on this island. The irony of the top secret island is there are no secrets. You, you know everybody's business and everybody's in your business, and it is a very uncomfortable place to live. The last time I was there, I was there uh, for two months or so in the summertime, and I could not wait to get out of there. It's very claustrophobic. Uh, this is the, uh, the big <coughs> antenna uh, radar. Uh, it's called Altar, and this is uh, another shot of it. It's, um, it's one of the most powerful radar antennas in the world, and it can track. It can track a wrench floating from the International Space Station. It's that sensitive. And so they do a lot of work outside the military. They, you can you know, contract these people to track your space vehicle or whatever. Lots of spy ships stop by. <clears throat> um, 
you know, to, to refuel. The Russians and Chinese are always snooping by the islands. In 93, I was there right after the wall fell, the Berlin Wall, and um, the commanding officer was giving us a, a orientation. They give you a little orientation film. And, and he showed uh, pictures of uh, uh, spy ships, Russian and Chinese, nearby. He said, just because uh, you know, the wall's down does not mean the war's over. You know, we're still, we're still uh, being spied on. Now, let's talk about the Marshallese. They were, at one time, uh, the, the, the most extraordinary um, navigators in the, uh, in the Pacific. They could navigate thousands of miles across the ocean by <clears throat> reading the waves, the pattern of the waves, and also the activity of birds. And um, it's a lost art now. <clears throat> they were also highly tattooed to the extent that in the 1500s, I think 1560, uh, when, I forget the guy's name, but a Spanish explorer, you know, the Spaniards were all over the place in, those, uh, in that century, came upon uh, the Marshallese, first Westerners to, to do that, so we think, called them uh, Las Pinturas, uh, the painted ones, uh, because of all their tattoos. Now, all that's been washed out in the 19th century. Uh, German missionaries came in and then an American and told them, stop that. So by, by about 1920, by World War II, all gone. All, all, the, all the tattoos were gone. A huge cultural loss. Uh, they also became the most ferocious warriors in the Pacific. You avoided these islands. At, and if you entered these islands, and we're talking about 1,200 sand spec islands in 750,000 square miles. Now, if you collected all those little sand specks and put them together, the aggregate mass would be no larger than Washington, D.C. So we got all these tiny little islands, but if your boat happened to go into the Marshall Islands, and they weren't called the Marshall Islands, by the way, um, that's a whole other story I don't, I'm not going to get into, but they'd kill your ass. They'd kill your ass, they'd sink your boat, they'd take your stuff, and you'd never be heard of again. The reason for this was what American explorers did and other explorers did when they went across the world was they'd go to an island and they'd say, hey, we're cool shit. We want you to feed us. And guess what? You're on this tiny little island. Where's the water going to come from? Where's the food going to come from? It is a, a, a substance living, and they lived literally from day to day. So you wonder why Captain uh, James Cook was killed in 17, who's got the date? 1790-something, uh, was that it? That late? 1770s. <clears throat> he was killed because he took advantage of the hospitality of the islanders. They didn't have the resources to sustain him and his crew of, what, 70 men for weeks on end, months on end. I mean, it's huge, huge imposition on these people. So what happened was, they got pushed around so much that they finally said, we're not doing to do this anymore. We see a Westerner come up here, we're going to kill their ass. We're going to sink their boat, we're going to take their shit, we're going to have, you know, that's it. <clears throat> and so that's what they did. So they became uh, 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 really, really uh, scary folks. You could not get a more beautiful Pacific, tropical, you call it whatever you want. I mean, it's un but it will drop you to your knees. And I was out there and some of what's called the outer islands. This is where nobody lives uh, because you can't live there. There's no water. There's no food. There's nothing there. The only reason there are coconuts there was in the 1800s, actually 1860 to 1890s, the Germans came out and planted coconuts on all the, on the, all, all the islands. Otherwise, there's no, there's no uh, uh, food to be uh, uh, thought of. 
Uh, it's just unfriggin' believable. Now, the Marshallese have a 30% unemployment rate currently, uh, so you see a lot of idle men around, um, and they are a nation of children. Uh, the average age now is 18. It used to be 16. Again, the average age, factor that in. Children are all over the place. I mean, they're just everywhere. And the Marshallese are beautifully uh, uh, generous and, and warm people, and they just give everything they can to their kids. But, of course, the kids, the kids take uh, what they want mostly from America. So you can see when you meet these kids... They're doing hip-hop, you know, they're, they're dressed like gangsters. They've got uh, cell phones, even though there's no place to call. There's nobody to call. It's like, you know, uh, um, there's, um, and they want everything American, so their culture is being totally washed out by uh, globalization. And the, um, the, the, uh, the genders are still separated uh, very, very strongly, uh, um, <coughs> I don't want to talk about, you know, when I went back in 2008, but just briefly, um, uh, the young women I I was working with, uh, they all knew handicrafts. They were still being taught some of the handicrafts. And so they could sit down and make a basket. You know, we have a picnic by the ocean, you know, and and suddenly, you know, the the guys are breaking out stuff, and some guy builds a fire with coconut husk, and the women take palm fronds, and within, like, 20 minutes, they've made a basket for the food. So, holy shit, this is so cool. Uh, so they still have some of this stuff in place, uh, but again, the genders are very segregated. Um, <clears throat> the diet is abysmal. This is one of what's called a takeout. They have these little takeouts, uh, uh, little stands where uh, spam is a really big deal. Uh, they love spam. Again, this is a holdover from World War II when the GIs came in and introduced it to American food and spam because it's sweet and salty and fatty. Who doesn't like Spam? I mean, you know, fry that up. That's just great stuff. They also have uh, a lot of uh, cookout places uh, along the road. Now, all of this you cannot find on Kwajalein. This is on the other islands because the Marshallese are not allowed to live on Kwajalein with Americans or next to the Americans. The Marshallese basically just come in and sweep the streets, clean the toilets, uh, and, and do various other things. And in the 40 years since I've been there, not much has changed. Uh, the Marshallese were a trust territory from 1945 until 1979. Trust territory is not a great, um, not a great uh, program for the host country because the, uh, the trust country, uh, America in this case, uh, pretty much infantilizes that, that country and, and, and makes sure that that country uh, is um, grown up enough at a certain point to take on their own business. And so uh, the Marshallese really had to fight hard, long and hard for that. But uh, they are a beautiful people, and, um, and some of the land here is just, uh, again, <clears throat> I'm just giving you some, uh, it's, <laughs> it's just uh, unfreaking believable, but um, not paradise, not what you think. Tiny, tiny little islands. So what I'd like to do here <clears throat> is um, read you just the beginning of the book selectively, and give you a sense of uh, one of the main characters coming to this strange place that, you know, most Americans just have no idea what's going on out there. We are testing missiles still, interballistic missiles. This is actually the legacy of Star Wars. The idea is that we're going to shoot down stuff that's coming at us. doesn't work. never has worked. We spend billions of dollars a year trying to make it work. And um, so if you want to know where your tax dollars are, they're out here. Lots of them are out here. And, um, 
And nowadays, uh, to do missile research, you can be a gamer and get a great job. And this is what Cooper has done. He's a um, young man uh, from California, <clears throat> originally from uh, actually Baltimore. Um, use what you know. <clears throat> and here he is. This is the beginning of the book. Cooper anchors a good 100 yards from the pilings. Um, uh, let, let me give you this. Um, you'll find No, you'll find this out. Because he... <laughs> That's the way it works in a novel, right? You find out stuff. Why do I have to tell you this? Um, Cooper anchors a good hundred yards from the pilings because he doesn't have the strength to tie up, much less negotiate the breakers. The island looks like an accident of nature, a thicket of palm trees on a hump of sand, hazy in the distance. Cooper can't be sure how much of the haze is due to heat and salt spray and how much is a product of his alarming fever, 104 by the thermometer's last warning. His right leg looks like a broiled side of beef, yellow-brown and bloated, a crusty custard of pus attracting all manner of flies on this windless afternoon. His pain is a hot and humming thing, as if it had a life of its own, like a teeming colony of red ants, always busy, always chewing. Ahead, he sees only a single aged pier, which suggests that the island has few inhabitants and receives fewer visitors. He's not completely ignorant about the mid-Pacific. He's done some reading. He knows that these atolls are crowns of coral left by sunken volcanoes a million years ago. Some come and go with the surge of storms. Many have never been visited or have been visited only long enough to be deemed uninhabitable because there's little fresh water out here. It's tropical, yes, just north of the equator, but not rainforest tropical. The rainy season crashes through every summer, sometimes a typhoon in the spring, but most storms are squalls, abrupt and short-lived, the sun breaking through to bake things dry within an hour, always the relentless sun. This afternoon's squall won't even reach him. He sees skyscraping thunderheads thresh the water a mile away. The clouds are trundling north black as a nasty bruise. Behind him lies a silver-gleaming, endless horizon. No wind today. So he couldn't sail even if he had the strength, which is why he put into this lagoon two days ago to find a landing. Since then, he has been congratulating himself for this show of prudence. The atoll's name, he thinks, is Lily, or rather, he wishes it were Lily because the name reminds him of his ex-fiancée. And I have this whole bit about that. Let's go back. <clears throat> Let's continue. Lillian was going to sail the 4,500 miles with him, stay for a month on Kwajalein, then fly back to the States. While Bailey, that's her daughter, stayed with her father. But Bailey betrayed them, undermining their intimacy at every turn and ultimately finding ways to discredit Cooper until Lillian gave him up, refusing finally to go through with the trip whose highlight would have been their wedding in Honolulu. Life is full of surprises, isn't it? Today, Cooper is surprised and a little frightened at his uncharacteristic fumbling as he tries to untether the yellow rubber dinghy from the back of the lickety split, the boat Lillian herself named. Once he gets the dinghy overboard, he falls flat-backed into it, his impact raising a splash that soaks his right shoulder upended, wallowing in the raft as if it were a hammock, his injured leg extended up and over the side. He watches the sky rocking in big seesaw swings. 
He recalls how he was so lucky as a boy because motion never made him woozy, much less sick. Happily, triumphantly, he rode the local amusement park's octopus, its swing ring, its rocket rocker, while Teddy, his younger brother, watched with grave envy from a nearby bench. And later, as a teenager, Teddy stood on the shore and watched as Cooper skippered his 16-foot single-sailed skiff into the choppy shallows of Baltimore's Back Bay, dropping cages to catch crabs. It would take Cooper years to understand the difference between those who love land and those who love water. He, Cooper, belongs on water. He sits up slowly, carefully, thankful that he hasn't hit his throbbing leg. It takes great concentration to wrap the outboard's nylon cord around his right hand, great focus to marshal strength in his biceps and steady himself with his left hand, then great effort to yank the cord decisively. But he does, and immediately the motor sputters, then whines its eagerness, the air abruptly smoky with gas fumes. Yes, this is good. Cooper drops the hand-sized prop into the water, which churns and bubbles. Then he is off, skittering over the surface, the swell of growing breakers, propelling the raft, a hot wind in his face, the kind of breeze any sailor would welcome. It never ceases to surprise him how long it takes to arrive at landfall after the first sighting. There's no sense of scale out here. The island, he assumes, is or was a coconut plantation like so many of the outlying atolls, which is to say that a hundred years ago, the Marshallese, directed by their German conquerors, cleared the scrub away and planted trees. Harvesters visit once or twice a season to gather the fruit. A few rusted tin roof shacks stand at the island's end to house the harvest. What other industry the island offers, Cooper can only guess. He tried to radio earlier, but got only static. He was too embarrassed to send an SOS. He would like to imagine the islanders crowding around him, rejoicing at his visit. What has this handsome stranger brought from the great world? But only a shirtless boy wearing denim shorts watches him from the beach. Yuck, yuck, Cooper calls. Greetings. The boy arches his eyebrows in wonder and continues to stare. As soon as the dinghy butts the sand, Cooper lurches forward and vomits, everything going yellow-green, his head tightening as if his scalp would pop. He feels better after he clears his mouth. Then he looks up at the boy, who must be about seven, skinny, missing a few teeth up front. The boy says, you sick? Cooper hauls himself out of the dinghy, bad leg first. He feels his wound bubble and ooze. The bloody pus looks like hot wax. The boy gapes at his leg, which makes Cooper feel worse. Angry at himself, Cooper swats the flies away. I need a doctor, he says. Some small part of him, a patient, I'm sorry, a penitent monk, sits in a dark cell and prays fervently for a miracle. The prayer includes a promise, I will never make this mistake again. He sees the boy nodding his head, yes, yes. The boy says, we got a doctor. Cooper can hardly believe his luck. He hobbles after the kid, the palm tops hover and bob over him, their frond clatter like applause. Cooper knows this is a beautiful place, but none of it registers. Not the turquoise crescent of the, the lagoon, not the blinding white-hot sand, not the mermaids singing from the tide pools. It is all he can do 
to will himself to keep moving, stay conscious. He leans into the boy who allows the sudden intimacy without a hint of distaste or discomfort. He imagines the boy sleeps in a shack with a mob of brothers and sisters. The settlement is a clutter of unpainted hovels with corrugated tin roofs and incongruously late model Japanese motorcycles parked out front. Skinny dogs whipping their tails and trotting a few paces behind bark at Cooper gleefully. Other children crowd around him, calling, Hey, what's up? Hey, man, what's up? Half delirious, stumping along on his hot ice pick pain, the children's chatter piercing in his ears. Cooper feels surly, stupid, and much too white. He's tempted to fling a handful of change over the sandy road and let the children dive for it like pigeons after popcorn. But all he has in his pocket are keys to his boat and a penknife. Where are the adults on this island? Town meeting, the boy says, as if reading his mind. He is pointing to a single-story, whitewashed, cinder-block building that looks to Cooper like a rundown laundromat. From here, he can see the outer edge of the island, the ocean side where the swells are breaking with frothy crashes, having traveled thousands of Pacific miles unimpeded. Black-tipped sharks are gliding in with the tide. Soon, they'll be dancing on the reef with the mermaids. It's chaos out there. Wouldn't Lillian be sorry now to see him like this? Wouldn't she fold him in her arms and make up at last? Maybe not. Didn't she warn him? Didn't she say, you don't know your limits? That's why I'm scared. The whitewash building is a laundromat, Cooper discovers, and air-conditioned, as cold as an ice chest. Six washers on one side of the room, six dryers on the other, none of them going. At the center of the room is a long, uncovered plastic table, the portable kind you might find at a bake sale. Around it sit the adults, who regard Cooper with mild surprise. They are short people of dark complexion and broad noses, curly black hair, though their race has been diluted for a century by foreigners, first the Spanish, then the Germans, then the Japanese, and then the Americans. The men wear T-shirts, American baseball caps, baggy trousers, and Zori rubber flip-flops. The women wear flowered cotton shifts, no head covering. They are smiling reassuringly in his direction, but not quite at him, a bashful people. Curiously, a number of them have pinkish welts on their foreheads and forearms, some kind of disease, or more of Cooper's hallucinations. Just beyond the table, on the dirty gold indoor-outdoor carpet, sits a craggy boulder as big as a beanbag chair. It must have taken five men to carry it. A rock of historical significance? The room smells of french fries, he decides. But the table is empty of food. Suddenly, the men, five to seven of them, are at his side, grinning and shaking his hand limply. Something Americans can't get used to is the way people in the Pacific shake hands. They, they don't know what to do with that. They'll give you their hand, but they won't shake your hand. What the fuck is that, shaking hands? What is that? So they're just like, okay, if you want my hand, here it is. And Americans just go... Ugh. They don't know what to do with it. I mean, it freaks Americans out. They go, these people don't know how to shake hands. What's wrong with them? It's just one of the first of many misconceptions. Where 
They smell sweetly of coconut oil, their hair wet with pomade. It seems they have been expecting him. Welcome, they are telling him. Sit, please, we have brought it for you over here. They are gesturing to the boulder, everyone excited. The women chatter among themselves in Marshallese. It is a language that comes from the back of the throat and resonates through the nose, high-pitched, adenoidal, filigreed with trilling R's. Lots of that. Painfully, Cooper sits, and yet no one remarks upon his leg. I need help, he says. My little friend said there's a doctor here. The children he sees are outside, peering through the laundromats, filmy plastic windows, hands cupped over their eyes. You are a doctor, one of the men says. It's not a question. The man, is this the chief, looks about Cooper's age, has poor posture and a small bowl of a belly. His diet Pepsi t-shirt stained with recent meals. He's smiling, showing off a silver tooth up front, but the Marshallese always smile. Cooper has read, it is their heritage to be pleasant, anything to keep the peace on their tiny atolls. Are you the boss? Cooper asks. I am the mayor, the little man says, Harold Van Horn the third. The others look at him with admiration. He speaks English very well. Only his staccato delivery and especially his elaborate, elaborately rolled R's betray his mother tongue. You're kidding, says Cooper. It's Dutch. Dutch, someone echoes. Cooper nods his understanding. I'm not a doctor, he tells him. I need a doctor for my leg. It should be simple, he thinks. Surely, even a remote island like this has penicillin. Harold the mayor gazes down at his leg and shakes his head with concern. It looks infected, your leg. Somebody places a plastic tumbler of orangeage in front of Cooper. Without thinking, he drinks it down. Its warmth and sweetness nearly make him gag, but he wants more of it. His ears are burning. You have a doctor, he asks. Is there an ice machine nearby, he wonders. You mean Dr. Thomas, the American, Harold the mayor says. American? Cooper has never considered himself patriotic or chauvinistic or jingoistic. He's been indifferent to America's power and prestige. He's not political. He's never been political. Geeks don't care about such things, or so he has joked. But lately, he's been feeling increasingly and grudgingly political now that America has invaded Iraq and too many Americans are insisting that this is payback for 9-11, even though it's clear, it has been clear, that Saddam had nothing to do with 9-11. Cooper feels pained by the spectacle, like a hapless witness to a playground fight where the bully punches the wrong kid in the nose. And it's looking bad, last year's supposed end to the invasion. Mission accomplished, the president boasted from the deck of an aircraft carrier, has devolved into an agonizing, bloody, embarrassing war. It could drag on for years, another Vietnam. Whenever Cooper explains his work, anti-ballistic missile defense, nobody hears anything but missile. You make missiles? Cooper makes missiles that shoot down other missiles. Actually, he doesn't even make missiles. He makes guidance systems. Actually, not the guidance systems themselves, but the programs that constitute the brain of those systems. See how complicated it is? His is a necessary, useful job. He agrees that tyranny must be defeated, But he's not fighting tyranny exactly. He's not fighting at all. And he's not a patriot. It's not like he has an American flag sewn into his windbreaker or blazoned on the bow of his boat. Still, when he hears the Pacific Islanders say the word American, 
Cooper shudders with a chill of excitement and surging pride because out here in the darkless swelter of Sandspeck Islands, Americans are a godsend. Americans get things done. If you're in trouble, you want the Americans on your side. Without Americans, the world would not have become the big, beautiful, modern mess that it is with movie stars and rock and roll and men on the moon and V8-propelled sports cars and brick-thick hamburgers and supersized milkshakes and 120-channel TV and air conditioning in every room and cloud-piercing skyscrapers and all-night supermarkets and 3D monster movies and virtual reality video games. It's junk, most of it, but it's also an expression of an an irrepressible will to do better. It's a celebration, too, of a restless, reckless drive to live fully. Isn't that why Cooper took the risk to sail all this way alone? He was restless and wanted to feel things he could feel only if he were reckless. Now, surrounded by the enthusiastic chatter of the dusky, wide-eyed people, he is overwhelmed by the sweet scent of their coconut oil, overwhelmed by the impossible remoteness of their tiny island, overwhelmed by the fact that here, in the middle of nowhere, he will see another American. Tears burn at the corner of his eyes. America, the beautiful land of the free, home of the Dr. Thomas, an American, Cooper gasps. That would be me. Cooper turns to see the Americans approach from the room in the rear, which must be a kitchen because the man carries a platter of steaming french fries. <clears throat> they must have seen Cooper coming. They must have set up all of this for his welcome. The American is a big bearded man with a sunburnt face and black plastic rimmed glasses. He wears a t-shirt that says across the chest in multicolored block print, fruit of the loom. His Bermuda shorts look like they could use a good wash. As soon as he sets down the platter of fries, a flock of brown hands flutter to them. Marvin Thomas, he says. He sits heavily across the table from Cooper, as formidable as a bull walrus, though far from obese. He's one of those guys who looks big and fit, but has never jogged a block or lifted a five-pound dumbbell. Everybody here calls me Thomas. He extends his paw, which Cooper tries to shake, but ends up squeezing only two fat fingers. I used to be with the Corps. Marine? Peace. You're a doctor? Cooper asks. Of American literature, a Melville man to be exact. I hope you like Melville. Cooper wants to groan in dismay, but instead he hears himself asking, can you help me with my leg? Thomas glances over the table, arches a brow at Cooper's leg, then says, it's infected. I need penicillin. Cooper tells about the 45-pound bluefin. It pissed him off how the blue refused to succumb after he'd fought the thing for a good half hour, after he'd played and pulled it to the boat finally, after, <clears throat> after he'd hauled it on deck and hammered it with his Louisville slugger. After all that, the beautiful bastard bucked, gills yawning, dorsal fins arcing at him, sun glinting from the yellow blue of its gorgeous scales. It spooked Cooper, the life in the thing. And for a moment, he wondered if he should kick it overboard, because sometimes it's better that way. Letting it go would have been a sign of respect. At that moment, his heel on the blue's bloody gills, the gaff, got him and tore a searing 13-inch gash down the calf of his right leg. He can't remember if it was the tuna that slammed it home or his own carelessness as he dodged the fish's formidable tail. In anger, he batted the tuna until his forearms ached. 
then disgusted with himself. Disappointed that a great catch had become so ugly, he dragged the bludgeon blue into the cooler below. Then he tended his bleeding wound, flushing it first with peroxide. He dressed it with antibacterial salve and sterile gauze. He knew it would be inflamed for a few days, but he didn't imagine it would get like this. He used three bottles of peroxide on it, wasted his one bottle of rubbing alcohol, then his last bottle of vodka, but the gash only got worse. It's the polyps, Thomas says. Coral's in the air. Everything gets infected if you don't soak it in hot salts. For three days, Cooper debated whether or not to put in at the nearest lagoon. He's five days east of the international dateline, not more than a week from Kwajalein Atoll, where he's supposed to start work in 15 days. Brad, his former supervisor, told him it was a stupid idea sailing the Pacific alone like this, especially since Cooper knew only coastal sailing. Doesn't matter how much time you log in the boat, Cooper, it's a whole other world once you lose sight of land, for pity's sake, and you've got a new job to think about. There is some similarity between sailing and the work he does, computing alone in a cubicle, the necessary self-absorption, the surrounding emptiness, the charting of a course among the known variables. The major difference is that computing can't kill you. Even a Bayshore weekender like Brad could appreciate that much. Cooper assured him that as long as the mast holds, a sailor can tie off the wheel, flag the stay sail. I don't know any of this shit, by the way. It's like, man, I did a lot of research, and I, just, I get seasick, violently, violently seasick. <laughs> Cooper assured him that as long as the ma- mast holds, a sailor can tie off the wheel, fl- flag the stay sail, trawl a storm drogue, then go below, batten the hatch, and ride it out. Cooper has done just that twice already, tossed and tumbled like a sock in a washing machine. Something to be proud of. But now to have fucked up while fishing on a calm day so close to his destination, it's too ironic. Thomas looks at him with some concern, though Cooper isn't convinced this is for his sake. The big man says, you're not our geologist then? This question sounds more like an announcement. It puts an abrupt halt to the other's robust eating of the fries. The Marshleys now stare expectantly at Cooper. Cooper sees that he is about to disappoint them all. You were expecting a geologist? To examine the meteorite, says Thomas, nodding to the big rock. Meteorite, a few of the others repeat. Biggest in the world, says Harold the Major, the mayor, and starts all of them talking excitedly in Marshallese. Probably among the biggest in the world, Thomas corrects. His boombox voice silences the others. Then he explains, last week there was a meteor shower, thousands of tiny stones raining from the early morning sky while the men were out fishing. This accounts for the small welts on their foreheads and forearms. The rain of rocks was preceded by an immense white flash. Like a million camera lights, Harold the mayor said. Dorian thought it was another bomb. He ports to Dorian, a young man wearing a t-shirt that says, The Rolling Stones. Its tongue and lip logo faded to a pale pink. His grandfather was burned by fallout in 1954. Dorian nods gravely. Then we hear the rocks falling like fish. Someone makes a rapid slapping noise that truly sounds like fish hitting water. It was 2.10 a.m., Harold, the mayor says. Benjamin was wearing his chronometer. Rocks falling all over, man. Scared me shitless. Laughter. Meteor shower. 
More likely a comet or a piece of comet, Thomas says, he radioed the tracking station at Kwajalein, which would neither confirm nor deny his conjecture. They don't care shit about anything but spying on the Chinese, the Russians, and the Tao heads. You know, they got a radar on Roy Namor so big it can track a wrench floating from the space shuttle. Yes, I know, Cooper says, because by God, he's going to be among them shortly, the most elite group of civilian programmers and engineers in the world. Helene found the meteor yesterday when she was collecting me, Harold the mayor continues. He looks with pride to the small stout woman with a streak of gray at her right temple. Helene smiles all around then says quietly, I thought it was an egg. The others laugh. Egg! Cooper regards the big brown boulder beside the t- beyond the tables and, and thinks of the egg of rock, the house-sized bird beast from the tail of Sinbad the sailor. Anything seems possible out here. He struggles to his feet, wavers a moment in the tight grasp of pain, then declares, I got a fever. I've got an infection. He hears his voice crack. I'm asking for help. Only now does he realize how desperate he has become. The next inhabited island, with or without a doctor, could be days away. His leg has been oozing pus for two. How soon before gangrene? The island's Islanders stare kindly at him, nodding agreeably as if encouraging him to make a speech. Why don't you lie down and we'll see what we can do, Thomas says. He motions for someone to clear away the empty fry platter. You can do something? Cooper asks. I don't know, Thomas shrugs. Maybe cast a spell, say a prayer, cut off your leg. Not funny, Cooper says with a croak of weirdness. Sorry. Thomas grins at him and Cooper sees for the first time that the man has nearly no teeth. This appalls Cooper. What does it rot out here? Thank you. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Time for Q&A, five minutes. Yes, Lance. Um, yeah, I was there uh, as a teenager in the late 60s, which is a great time to be there because they are pretty lenient with us. Kids go run amok there, or did. You can imagine, summer all year round, are you kidding me? And parents didn't care because they know you, you, know, you couldn't fall off the island. Um, so they just let you go. And we pretty much just ran our way anytime we felt like it. <clears throat> so I had a great time. But actually, it was, um, I, I just started getting this urge to go back. This happens uh, to people who live out there. There's a, there's a, there's a whole cohort, cohort of um, what's called quad kids, those of us who grew up there, spent time there. And they're all around the, the country, and they have a Facebook, like four Facebook pages, actually. Um, and it haunts you. It gets in your blood. Uh, uh, what happened to me was um, it politicized me in ways I could not fathom when I was there as a kid. Um, at the time, the Vietnam War was going on, and, and so um, the death plane often parked on our runway, and that's the plane carrying bodies back from Vietnam. Um, the Marshallese were so clearly uh, being screwed <laughs> over. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, we have all our subsidized goods on Kwajalein, and they had a surplus of shoes. And my mother informed me that well, they're, they're going to take them to the landfill and burn them. I said, why don't you give them to the Marshallese on that little island next door to us because everyone calls that the Calcutta of the Pacific. It's so crowded, so poor. She goes, oh, we can't do that because that would ruin their, you know, their economy. Really? 
like they're not already ruined by like everything else we've done here. So, you know, I was just at that age where it just started getting to me. So I wanted to go back, but I didn't know how. The only way I could go back was to teach. And I was teaching Americans. I didn't really want to be there with Americans. I wanted to be the Marshallese. I finally figured out how to do that. But, uh, and I did go to Majuro. Majuro is a capital island. Very interesting place. Um, and I was so naive. You know, I was just like, it took me a long time to grow up. Um, and so um, when I was on Kwajalein in 1993, people would tell me, oh, when you go to Majuro, be careful now. Because, you know, at night, uh, you're going to hear knocking on your door, and that's going to be prostitutes. And, you know, they're going to be like, what? Like, there are all these myths about what the Marshallese do and what they're, what they're like. And, of course, I go to Majuro, and I'm, you know, put a chair up against my door. And say, uh. <clears throat> anyway, uh, a short answer is I, 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 I got this urge to go back. I wanted to do something there. And eventually I did. Eventually I figured out how to do something there. But it gets in your blood. It's just like, ah. Something about that place, yeah. So, I think there was nuclear testing out there. Yes. Was that going on when you were a kid still? No. That had stopped in 1956. It's 1959, 46 to 59, 67 uh, nuclear tests in the Marshall Islands. While they were a trust of, you know, they were our ward of the United States, totally messed them up. There there were tribunals, and they're still... um, and they've lost their, la- their last suit uh, against the Americans. The problem is uh, it created a legacy of leukemia and other illnesses uh, among the people. And um, there's really, um, how do you pay for that? I mean, what do you do? It's not enough. It's not. And so um, they're still, they're called the survivors. And if you go to my um, trailer, that, that song that you hear behind the trailer is actually the nuclear survivor song. They, they, uh, once a year, they commemorate uh, surviving the, the, what they call the Holocaust. Uh, because what happened was uh, the, the army was so insensible to uh, the, the Marshallese, um, they just forgot stuff. Like they detonated a bomb in Bikini and forgot about the winds that would just blow it into Rongelap and everywhere else. Totally messed up. You know, it's like, the Marshallese had no idea what was going on. Just no idea. Army would show up and say, hey, we've got to take you somewhere else. Hey, don't worry about the bomb on Bikini. We'll bring you back when everything settles down. Ain't no settling down after you, play, after you detonate an atomic bomb on your island. Um, and uh, which one is it? Uh, and we talk. Uh, they had to cover over. The, 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 the radiation was so intense, they had to cover over uh, the island with a huge dome of concrete. It's a pretty cool picture. You can pull it up online. Huge domes, like, I don't know. It's like a quarter mile wide. Um, so they, uh, now, the Marshallese, for them, uh, the land is sacred. And, and uh, if you go to Majuro and other islands, you'll see that they've um, they buried their, their family right in, front, right in the front yard. You're, you're, you have your little shack, and then boom. And by the way, they're living in shacks because they don't own the land. Most of these are not landowners. They, they're renting the land. So why build a house? You know, Americans think, oh, these people don't have any pride of ownership. They don't own it. All these people you see, they're living in shacks because they don't own this land. But they'll bury their family right there because um, they want to be close. And they believe, and some of their myths are about, you know, regeneration from the soil, predictable stuff. But if you take away their land, 
If you say, okay, Bikinians, we're going to take away your entire atoll. That's your collection of islands. We're going to bomb the shit out of it. And, uh, you know, we'll send you back. Well, they never have gone back. And when I was out there in 2008, um, (coughs) that generation, who were children when the bomb went off, no warning, they just woke up one morning. Is the Bikini Atoll the same as the Marshall Islands? Yes, atolls are a collection of islands. So we have uh, 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 numerous... Yeah. 27 atolls in the Marshall Islands and, and about 1,200 islands. So, um, so you have all these collections. And so um, they were exiled from their, from their, from their native soil. And, and uh, they grew up there. They buried their family there. And, and they can't go back. And they're, they're heartbroken. So, but no, by, by the time I was there, it was gone. But I was hearing stuff about this. Uh, you couldn't not hear that stuff. Time for one more question. Yes. Uh, the Marshall Islands, uh, I read where there's deep historical melting. Yes. Average elevation is six feet. Um, ocean's already rising. Lots of stuff happening out there. Uh, and, and yes, it's, it, a lot of this is in the book. Um, um, the, the, the island nation below them, what's it, Kiribati? Uh, is even worse shape, but they're all they're all suffering the same thing. Yeah, what's going to happen with the Marshallese? They made a, a deal with the devil. They really didn't have any choice. The deal with the devil was the, they signed the Compact of Free Association with the United States in 1984, I think it was, and that means that they are de facto citizens. They can come here and work, no green card, nothing. They can just come here because we blew the hell out of their property, and so um, they're all going to end up here. Uh, 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 how many? Um, a total of 50,000 people in the Marshall Islands, Marshallese, and 20,000 are living in the States already. So they're in Honolulu, uh, Compton, California, um, Northwest Arkansas. Um, there, there are pockets of Marshallese all around the country. And what's going to happen is the ocean's going to swallow them up, and they're going to end up in the States working, you know, uh, at, you know, as cashiers and probably minor jobs, um, because they don't have the education. That's what's going to happen. They're worried about it, um, but what are you going to do? The ocean's rising, the ocean's rising. One other interesting thing about being out there is you see a lot of garbage. I mean, just on the, on the beaches, garbage is everywhere. I've got an interesting picture of, of a, a heap of um, a flip-flops. It's like, a, it's like it's just a pile of flip-flops that are washed up from the ocean. Well, it's not that the Marshallese are pigs. It's that they are in the pathway of the trash gyres. The trash gyres uh, uh, win their way across the Pacific and back around. And if you're in the, in the way of that, you get all the world's garbage. I mean, you get all the world's garbage. And it's just like piling up. It's just everywhere. It's just amazing. So to be out there... And, and I hope you go visit by reading this book. And by the way, Mother's Day is coming up. Uh, um, to be out there is just to be in this unbelievably beautiful, troubled, just amazing uh, um, place that, that, that gives you a sense of, of scale uh, as a human. You know, you stand out there on this gorgeous beach, you look out here, and uh, maybe strewn in the shallows, are uh, a thousand rusted nine volt batteries, you know, and and, and 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 then you see a porpoise breaking the water out here, uh, you know, as the sun is setting in the distance, 
and uh, you, you hear the uh, palm frond clatter behind you, and you, you smell, you know, and, and there's no one around, not a soul, just you on this beach, and you're thinking, holy shit, what, is, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be in this world and, and to, you know, to, 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 to see this stuff? Um, it's really, really cool stuff, and that's why I had to go back. I had to go back and make sense of it, and that's what this novel is trying to do. It's like, as an American, we've got an obligation to make sense of particularly places we've messed up. Anyway, thank you so much.